Would you tell us the nature of your relationship with Mr. Boz? He gave me a lot of pleasure. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. You ever uh, engage in any sadomasochistic activity? The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Did you kill Mr. Boz, Mr. Amell? I'd have to be pretty stupid to write a book about killing and then kill somebody the way I described it in my book. I'd be announcing myself as the killer. Today we're going to be discussing Basic Instinct. Starring Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone. Directed by Paul Verhoeven. You shouldn't play this game. Why not? I like it. You're in over your head. Maybe. But this is how I'll catch my killer. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's the podcaster who is always involved in sadomasochistic activity. It's Gally in Glasgow. Uh, just returning from a very successful, unmotivated, but in the moonbeam walk, it's Devlin in London. I'm just your average, healthy, totally fucked up cop. It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> oh, welcome, welcome back, guys. And welcome back, Matt in South Korea. And, uh, and today, well, as a consensus pick, we... I don't know why we all decided that we wanted to get a little bit, I don't know, a little bit lurid, a little bit sleazy. Gentlemen, I'm going to ask you straight away. Why have we decided to pick Basic Instinct? That's a good question. Where did it come from? I think, Matt, this is probably on your your list of, of potential episodes that we could do together. Yeah, it was on a short list of films, uh, all, you know, possible ones we can do. And, uh, I remember first seeing the video box for basic instinct at a friend's house alongside the terminator and a few other 18 certificates and it was kind of forbidden even then just the tiny picture on the jacket um it was my friend uh, pete and kev's house in catrick and i would also see it on the top shelves in the local video shops the out of reach top shelves of clearview and Kavner's. but uh it's not the kind of thing you send your mum down to the shop yeah so it was a long time until i actually saw the film i think i saw it um on tv on itv in quite a heavily censored version with the adverts and everything and that was the only cut of it i saw until maybe 2011 when uh, i watched an unedited director's cut of it and i saw all the extra stuff what about you devlin i think i mean i'm I'm certain that it percolated into my consciousness kind of young it was a film that was uh it made a big splash didn't it It had like a big mm-hmm. pop culture footprint it was a topic of much hand wringing and discussion it was parodied uh relentlessly as we've as i've already alluded to in national lampoon's loaded weapon one <laughs> yeah. uh, i i saw this yeah as a as a kid probably i don't know maybe 11 i think at the time um when it came on to sky movies Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine, uh, I probably at some point deployed a, uh, uh, um, a cheeky VHS and I think I would have recorded it and then, you know, squirreled it away. Mm-hmm. I think it went around the houses, you know, it's like, oh, I have this and then it would have been tape trading at school and stuff. It was, uh, yeah, it was again, it was just, it was the illicit thing. I think much like most people who would have watched it at that age, or possibly people who watched it uh, as it as it came out, I 
I'd never really took it as a film, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't think about it as a, as an actual piece of cinema with a plot and stuff. It was just, it was the, that proper naughty sex film. <laughs> um, but yeah, how about you girls? Oh, that's interesting because I must be the reverse, but then I am, I am just a strange chap on. I, <laughs> I, 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 I watched this one again. I think similar age. I might have even been younger because again, I like a lot of the films. I caught them on Sky, uh, and this one, uh, a bit like you, Matt, would have been a, a a really censored version. But for those that know me or follow me on Twitter, uh, know that I am a huge Columbo fan, and the police procedural is just like I've always. I've always enjoyed uh, murder mystery, whodunits, uh, those kind of types of stories. So I, I'm going to say that the uh, the sex kind of just bypassed me, probably because I saw a censored version, and I was just into the the whodunit. <laughs> so yeah. I was very much at the procedural point of view, and the the sex came later, or the 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 kind of the the power of it. Um, but I, yeah, I I very much saw it as, and also, I mean, I'm gonna. I'm going to confess now that I think Michael Douglas may be my favorite A-list star of that era. Um, I've yeah, followed his career from Romance in the Stone, loved mm-hmm. him in that. And then all these films that are way, way, way beyond my years. You know, Wall Street, I was one of those sycophants that misconstrued it because I was a kid. And it's like Gordon Gecko is quite clearly uh, the most attractive character in that film as far as that's someone I'd like to be. And then uh, Fatal Attraction, again, I shouldn't be watching that film as a younger child, but hey-ho. Uh, so, yeah, I was a bit of a Michael Douglas fan, so I just took it as a detective story with Michael Douglas. Interesting. The, the sex kind of, yeah. Now, I was too young, maybe. If I'd watched it when I was 13, then it probably would have been flipped. But It was strange to see him going from Jewel of the Nile and Romancing the Stone to, to this, because I knew him for those films, Uh only and mm. then to see him and this was a, a bit of a shock before we start talking about uh, the film matt would uh, would you like to give us a uh, a thorough plot synopsis on basic instinct sure i'll do my best when coked up retired rock star johnny boz is ice picked to death mid-coitus by an anonymous blonde killer the san francisco police department are left to pick up the dirty pieces boz's current squeeze the fully hot bisexual crime novelist heiress and all-round femme fatale Catherine Trammell, played by Sharon Stone, becomes the lead suspect <laughs> as the murder closely mirrors the plot from one of her books. Off the source, on the wagon, and the case, average healthy totally fucked up cop and homicide detective Nick Shooter Curran, played by Michael Douglas, becomes embroiled in a sordid world of sex, manipulation, mind games, and death. Tramel is questioned, but after providing an alibi and comfortably beating the lie detector, is released because they can't exactly charge her with smoking, right? Meanwhile, the callous-palmed shooter hops back on the double blackjacks and continues to pursue an abusive affair with his former lover and current psychologist, Dr. Beth Garner, played by Jean Triplehorn. Not only is it revealed that Beth and Catherine shared classes at Berkeley together, but their psych professor and Catherine's counsellor at the time, Dr. Noah Goldstein, was also hacked to death with, you guessed it, an ice pick. Fresh off his seedy bar taunts, Detective Marty Nielsen sells Catherine Shooter's psych file for a cool 50000 bucks. But when he's later shot dead, 
Nick becomes the new prime suspect and is dragged in for a familiar interrogation. The bisexual Catherine's live-in lesbian lover and psycho killer in her own right, Roxy, attempts to run Curran down in her sports car, but eventually dies in a wreck following their high-speed man-to-man chase through the nighttime streets of Frisco. When Nick's fat cowboy partner Gus is done in in a lift by the shrouded murderess, he rushes to his aid. However, Beth suspiciously emerges from a nearby stairwell, claiming she received a call alerting her to the building in question. Nick's magna cum laude pussy fried mind kicks in and he hastily guns down Beth in a Bart Simpson keyring toting standoff. In that very same nearby stairwell, key crime scene evidence is discovered, including a platinum blonde wig, a bloodied Buck 65 Kmart ice pick, and an SFPD jacket, and it all somewhat conveniently points to Beth being the sultry stabber all along. So who's nuttier than a 20-pound Christmas fruitcake? Can Curran tell shit from Shinola? <laughs> an ice pick under the bed provides our final clue, as Nick and Catherine fuck like minks, <laughs> raise rugrats, and live happily ever after. Or do they? Oh, Matt, bravo. Wow, that is yep. a film that I want to watch again. <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> it sounds all right in a synopsis, doesn't it? Oh, it does. It does. Um, I, I tell you what, let's, I want to get straight into just sort of the, the history of how this got made, uh, a little bit for people that are, are not aware. Uh, cause normally, uh, on all the shows we've talked about, very rarely have we mentioned the, the screenwriter. Right, I can't think of one Devlin that we've discussed that isn't mm. a writer director. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, like writer generated project. Yeah, yeah. But Joe Estahas, uh was what? Made, well, certainly the first celebrity screenwriter that I was aware of. Um, mainly down to the next project, probably, which was uh, Showgirls. But yeah, he was someone who. Um, you know, he, he transcended that normal role of, well, no one really cares who the writer is. Mm. And I guess today's, you know, comparison would be, you know, David, uh, Lindelof, um, or maybe Alex Kurtzman, those kind of names that you hear. Oh God. Oh, well, I know. Oh God. We were, I know Alex Kurtzman <laughs> is a bad one to go with, but you know what I mean? Was it because we watched The Mummy last weekend, girls? It is because we watched The Mummy <laughs> and it is one of the worst films, one of the worst studio films made in the last decade. There's no doubt about it. Um, but, but yeah, the, um, and I guess the other one in the nineties would have been Kevin Williamson, you know, who, wrote scream and then yeah we had um you had shane black as a contemporary of joe esterhouse as being like yeah shane black yeah well, that's a the, really good one big... i guess i guess yeah i, I guess it's because shane black went into directing right after, yeah, but yeah. joe esterhouse was a quote unquote just screenwriter um obviously had a history before that but he never directed a film no kevin williamson's good too i think because yeah. all, all of his stuff is thematically very very close and so is the esterhouse stuff so i think that's a good good comparison yeah, and, too oh, listen Never met the man, don't know him, but from uh, looking at his history and what people have said about him, quite an unpleasant chap, it's probably <laughs> fair to say. Um, <laughs> he's got some pretty uh, out there views that are very controversial. Does he? And, uh, yes. Not very, that I'm trying I'm to bait you into saying shit that would sound horrible on a podcast, but I'm just, uh, I'm <laughs> intrigued. I don't know much about him other than that people kind of, he, he has a, a reputation as being very belligerent. Yes, I think um, he says it as he sees it. Uh, a spade is a spade, that kind of thing. Uh, to the detriment of probably other people's feelings. Um, right. 
is, is probably fair. Mm. But also, if you look at the films that he was attached to, so he he he, he wrote on Flashdance, uh, yeah. which was a big success. But but he's really, I think, famed for Basic Instinct and Showgirls. Both have got you know sex. There are gender politics at play. The the dialogue is normally aggressive and quite yeah. Um, vulgar. Yeah. There was uh that was what I was gonna say about your uh, your plot synopsis, Matt, as thank God you got the uh the, the voice of the yeah. of the dialogue because geez, Yeah, I didn't want to say half of those things. I really is, didn't want to say it them, is but ripe, I, I thought, isn't it? It's like every line has just got yeah. such emphasis to it. Sure. I was just trying to reflect what's going on really, but I didn't I didn't want to say half of those things. It's no, weird. no, but it's it's because that that's the tone of the thing. It's it is I, I don't know what would you, yeah, I don't know, ripe is the word that comes to word, but it's more than that, isn't it? It is like... It's blunt, it's just very... Yeah. Um... I guess in the context of whatever the story is, and, and also the genre that it's playing in, so in Showgirls, it's fair to say, I, I haven't watched it in a long time, but what the audience rejected that 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 voice in that story... And in Basic Instinct, you know, at the time, it made, it was gangbusters. I mean, this mm-hmm. was like the fourth biggest film of 1992, I think, box office wise. I think it made 372 million mm-hmm. in the box office, which is mental. I think we did that when the, I saw that there was a, a, a figure of the uh, profitability rather than just the, the pure box office taken because it wasn't, you know, it's not a, a mega expensive film. Um, so I, I think, was it the most profitable? I think it was, yeah. It could have been. The other three were, um, Home Alone and The Bodyguard and oh. Aladdin, I think was the number well, one. Well, there you player. go. I mean, so to be fourth behind those is. Yeah, this one had a budget of, of 49 million, I got, well, and uh, a box office of 352. So it really, really did oh. well. Yeah, that's incredible. Incredible numbers. This is the sort of film that you would always think, oh, this will do well on video. I understand the logic behind, you know, putting something like this out because, uh, uh, once the home video market became such a big deal, it's like, oh, everyone can retreat to the safety of their home and they can watch it without judgment. But surprised that so many people went to the cinema to see it. When I've mentioned to a couple of people that this was an episode we were doing, you get the look, you know, you get the kind of, oh, porn, is it? Um, and I, I bought this, I bought this on DVD so that we could watch it because obviously sometimes we find it a little tricky to find uh, some of these films on streaming services. And I figured it was better to just buy it. I, I was in a computer exchange in Southampton of all places, buying a big old stack of, uh, in some cases, absolute crap and in others, hidden gems. Uh, and they just had this for one pound and even oh, then wow. taking it to the counter, you got an, you got an eyebrow raise from the guy yeah, working yeah. on the counter. It's like, Oh, <clears throat> its reputation remains intact as being a kind of a bit of a sordid little uh, secret. One of its reputations is that it was responsible for a profusion of imitators, right? I mean, I, I remember Slither, yep. which Another Joe Westerhouse also yeah. wrote, yeah. And uh, Slither is, is dreadful. And it's one only, the one good thing about it is that UB40s. <coughs> Can't Stop Falling in Love is a great track, and it's weirdly attached to that film, which has no, um, I mean, it's about as tangential as the outro tracks that we use for our episodes. I mean, it is, there is no, there is no link whatsoever, yeah, uh, to, to the film. It did feel like Sharon Stone was trying to, to recreate the 
the impact of Basic Instinct, and maybe Esther has too. The trailer for Sliver actually has the Jerry Goldsmith uh, score to Basic oh, wow. Instinct. It's not even pretending to be anything oh, other than some kind of a thematic follow-on. So, yeah, the trailer is probably the best thing about that. I don't really, I don't really like Sliver at all. And he, he also wrote another one. Uh, did you watch the Linda Fiorentino uh, Jade? Do you ever see that one? Oh. I remember the. Uh, I remember seeing like the cover for this around in places, but I never watched it. No, that I, last I, seduction I I saw quite a lot, but I didn't see Jade. It's a. Mm. I didn't realize it's a William Freakin movie. Sorry, I just looked. At yeah, it. yeah, it's it's not very good. Tabs. No. it's really not. Um, yeah, it's. It, there was a. I do, I do remember. I mean, we may as well get into it. But like in the nineties, I just remember that it was. I don't know whether, and I could be pulling this out of my uh, out of my my rear. Um, but I, I wonder if it was like a post AIDS epidemic, like liberation where I, cause you remember the film threesome? I don't know why, but that one sticks in my mind. The Stephen Baldwin and I think it's Lisa. Oh, what's her name? She was in men in black too. Oh, uh, um, wait, wasn't that Linda Fiorentino? No, she was in the first black movie. She looked like her. No, it's the the sequel. She's the villain. I can't remember. It's I think it's Boyle. Her surname's Boyle. Oh, uh, Lara Flynn Boyle from Twin Peaks. Yes, Lara Flynn Boyle. Why I, I can't remember that. But it's a film about three people that live in a an apartment and they all start having sex. With oh, them. I do remember and this. That is it. Yeah. That is it. That is the story. And it's called Threesome. And I just remember like it just felt like the Red Shoes Diaries was on yeah. Channel Five. Used to play like the softer yeah. kind of sexy movies about. 11 o'clock. Well, I, I was going to say, because um, there, there were like, you know, kind of steamy-ish thrillers throughout the, the 80s leading up to this one, although none of them cranked their aspects up as high as this one did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it did kick off like a slew of imitators, but I found it really interesting that, um, at least as far as the mainstream one goes, and even the, the, the shitty cash-ins, um, usually if a film kicks off a, a bit of a movement or a moment, the later films try and top it somehow. So like when Saw, with the original Saw is, is kind of, it's not restrained, but it still has time for kind of psychology and, and character and stuff. And then Saw kicked off that movement of like, for want of a better term, uh, torture porn. Immediately the challenge is let's be sicker than this. Because that's what they figured is the selling point. It's like, oh, well, this shit was sick. So what if she has to put her hand in some acid or whatever? And because mm-hmm. Basic Instinct went so full throttle from the start where it's it's very graphic in both the sex and the murder. What's odd is that the ones that came after didn't try and push the envelope further. Like even the the like the Channel 5 films that you're talking about, you know, the, the two Shannons. Shannon yeah, Tweed yeah. and Shannon Weary. I think every yeah. British guy of a certain age would would know the Channel Five eleven PM time slot very well. Well, I think a lot of it comes from Verhoeven's European weirdness. You know, the, right. the, the nudity and and stuff isn't that uh, uh, different for him. Yeah, he's bringing a lot of that too. And I think he he laid it down at the beginning. He said, "Look, the the actress needs to be full frontal nudity throughout. The sex scenes are very important to him." And I think that's that's one of the reasons why Sharon Stone ended up getting it because a lot of the actresses turned it down for for fear of it being too lurid or mm. um, too sexually explicit. But yeah, yeah that that Verhoeven European weirdness is great. It's all over Robocop. It's all over yeah. Total Recall. He's just he's fantastic. I think I I really like him. I don't think this is his strongest moment, but um, I, I'm 
I'll see anything that he does, I think. I'm going to say that I've revised my Verhoeven list and I'm going to put Basic Instinct at the top. I honestly, yeah, I think this is, genuinely, I think this is a masterpiece. (laughs) I said it's a strong word, isn't it? But um, like the films that we've reviewed thus far, this is my second favorite and it's behind Silence of the Lambs. Uh, I think it's great, mm-hmm. yeah. and I am looking forward to uh, to saying, uh, defending it maybe because you're right, Devlin. There is a real snootiness about this. So I bought this in my local HMV, and uh, I also got thrown a little bit of shade. <laughs> it was, uh, it's <laughs> hard, isn't I was it? Like, I mean, yeah, I was like, listen, um, Paul Verhoeven, Michael Douglas, uh, Sharon Stone. It's a it's a well known film, uh, but I think you're right. Like uh, the 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 perceived trashy element of it uh, really does override everything else within the film, and uh, and I think it's a real shame. So I'm looking forward to kind of uh, at least explaining why I'm going to go full tilt on this being Verhoeven's. Mm. I think it's his best film, honestly. Well, well, it's very him. It's 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 Verhoeven all over, isn't it? It's it's just if you like him, then you're going to like this. But you know, well, everything is over the top. If you ever listen to an interview with Paul Verhoeven, you'll understand why he approaches every scene and every piece of action, whether that be a sex scene or a, a violent murder, completely over the top. Because he talks at about a hundred miles an hour, and and he's he gestates and he's just a big, large and live kind of character, isn't he? And I think the matchup with him and Esterhaus, which they only did two, there was Basic Instinct and Showgirls. And uh, and as I alluded to, Showgirls didn't work. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I may need to revisit it. Um, but but Basic Instinct did work at the time, but not without its controversy. Uh, but I think you're right uh, about the the European weirdness. It's just the outsider element, isn't it? He's mm. able, like in Robocop, like in Total Recall, to um to sort of pass judgment from an outside perspective on american culture and 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 pop in this social commentary uh underlined in all of his films do you think um, um that as much as because I, I i agree that i do think that there is an element always of 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 like critique like critique of the excess of the of the genres that he's playing in but um do you think he also just indulges all those genre tropes to such a massive dialed up to 11 effect just because he also really likes them? There's a couple of ways of looking at it, isn't there? He, is he subverting genre conventions? I think he does, but I think he also just revels in it. Like he, the one that always gets me, cause everyone always points to the, um, the Robocop death in the boardroom. Yeah. It's like completely over the top. Mm. But the one that always gets me is Total Recall when Arnie's going on the, uh, on the escalator and some poor bystander just gets absolutely <laughs> bullied. And then Arnie uses him as a, oh, the as a human shield. shield. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and it is, it is completely bonkers. Yeah. But I think that's just, that's what he does yeah. because again, in an action film, there are innocent bystanders. You could look at it both ways. I like to think that he's trying to make a comment there about, bystanders and it is just ridiculous but you can enjoy them viscerally just from surface level and it's one of the reasons why i think i really enjoy most of his films is that you as a kid so starship troopers i remember watching starship troopers when it first came out got it on vhs loved it just a war film good guys bad guys Mm. hero to follow right 
and it's and from a surface level, just a really enjoyable action film. And then you watch it again, and oh, wait a minute! There's a comment here about fascism, about um, people being kind of indoctrinated into a certain mm. mentality. Who's the good guys and the bad guys? Well, actually, if you watch it again, it's like the bugs. What have they done wrong? They're just uh, they're, they're being invaded by us, and and that that kind of like layered stuff that he does. It's sometimes it's not subtle, but when you're watching it, you just enjoy the action, you enjoy the overtopness, and I think the same can be said of Basic Instinct. He does have this kind of extreme uh, way of tackling everything, but I, I was quite surprised on the audio commentary how how um, little he concerned himself with some of the technical aspects of basic instinct he kind of deferred to uh yan de bont who was also on the commentary director of photography on on basic instinct but also a director in his own right with the speed movies and uh and twister and he mm-hmm. he would de- often defer to him on the commentary things like the the way the uh they used a two point uh a two three nine uh anamorphic widescreen on this is the first time that Verhoeven used it. It's a very, very wide frame. And it was Jan de Bont that wanted to do that uh, just to fit lots of things in the frame. Uh, there's one, there's particularly the interrogation scene, I think uh, dictated it because you have, I think six people in the frame at mm. once. Mm. And just in terms of the lighting and the way things kind of look like they're underwater and uh, there's lots of reflections and shadows and he talks about Hitchcock and things like that, but really he's like this driving, uh, energetic extreme force. He has a, he has a vision, but I, I'm not sure how technical he is. I always assumed Verhoeven was more technical, mm. but, um, but yeah, I think we, we, if you, if you like the way basic instinct looks, I think Jan de Bont is, is really the key to, to some of those things. That is, yeah, that's really interesting because I'd, I'd had the same. The same thought, really, when you think of of like how massively put together his stuff is, you, the, like RoboCop and and Total Recall, uh, especially, because yeah. Um, yeah, the look of Basic Instinct is great, um, but the, the, the satire of some of the other ones, I think that's all Verhoeven. I think right. he, he knows that it's playing on two levels. I think he's a pretty smart guy, and uh, yeah. but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I was kind of uh, surprised because I thought he'd know a little bit more about it, but he just deferred almost everything to to Yanderbont. You know, you mentioned the the Hitchcockian aspects. I mean, they they are baked in throughout the entire film. And let's get into it. The straight away from the opening credits. If you've never seen a Hitchcock film, well, here's your here's your Hitchcock adjacent. The credits and the music by Jerry Goldsmith are phenomenal. I just, I just loved it, and I loved the way that the the it's like a glass sort of refracting mm. um, and you can't quite see what's going a on mosaic. in the background yeah. yes like a mosaic and um, and it, it's almost like a tease as if right you you think you're going to see sex but actually we're going we're to kind of pull away from it and I, I think it's the, ga- the great trick of the film is that it starts with an absolute bang the uh, music the music was the key for me as soon as that music comes in the goldsmith sleaze score it just sounds like it's it's Total Recall continued because he did the music for that as well, and it just sounds very similar, and it just flows from one film to another, and it's really it's not just memorable, but it's instantly recognizable, and it's very effective in setting that opening scene. Uh, you know, this erotic cat and mouse whodunit. It's perfect, and it, it, it and that score hangs in there really well until the very final frame of the film. It kind of really glues everything together and uh, in some interviews it, apparently he worked with Verhoeven very um, exhaustively on the 
on the soundtrack. They couldn't quite get it right, the score, and Verhoeven had a very clear vision for it, but I, I think it plays really well. I like that the score doesn't uh, uh, have any kind of... You say, like, the sleaze score, which it kind of is, but it avoids a lot of the... Uh, There's the no saxophones. Tra- yeah, basically, yeah. It avoids the bear traps of, like, <laughs> of, of shitty sub-porn scores, which which uh, uh, kind of blight a lot of, of other films about this. Like, the... That kind of the, the the churning strings and and it is all, I mean, setting it in San Francisco and having the kind of the icy blonde in the in the uh, white outfit it is kind of it's pulling bits and pieces from Vertigo. It's it's not it's not like mm. a whole uh, um, a whole cover version or anything. There's there's just little elements that they pull from it, um, but it's it's enough that it's simultaneously sleazy and classy. And it's, it's not very subtle. It, it, Verhoeven's yeah. about as subtle as a sledgehammer, isn't he? He's kind of, he, he just goes for it. And, but you know, you know where you are from, from the first few frames, you know what you're watching and it's, you're just in at the beginning. It's great. The other thing that about the opening scene that was great, as soon as the film starts, you see the Karolko logo and isn't mm, it great oh yeah. to see that? Yeah. It's oh yeah. now defunct, you know, all gone. But some of my favorite films from that time all have the, the Karolko stamp on the beginning, so it was great to see that. I also like seeing the uh, the the old school Pegasus from the TriStar logo flying. Mm-hmm. As well. Yeah, always a mark of quality. Yeah. yeah, but we didn't mention it before. Um, one of the reasons why it's so famed and and Astor House uh, got such uh, notoriety is that Karolko just outbidded everybody. So the script was quite uh, yeah. a hot one. I think he said he wrote it in like thirteen days. Um, based on a cop that he knew, uh, and, and he just wanted to, and he, uh, based on a cop he knew and based on a, on a, on a woman that he knew that was the, the kind of Catherine Trammell type, uh, strong female character. Mm. And, uh, and Kralko just went three million dollars. There you go. Boom, which mm. was pretty unheard yeah. of at the time. And that is a lot of money for a script, uh, in anyone's, uh, in anyone's, you know, book. So, uh, that, that was a kind of risk that Kralko took, and unfortunately, those risks uh, eventually meant that they went bust. So I don't, I don't know much about Joe Esterhaus and, and where his influences for the script were, but um, I can only assume that as well as uh, like a Hitchcock thriller type thing, I don't know whether that's in the script either or whether that's a kind of a veneer that, that Verhoeven added himself um, when it came to the direction, but the script seemed very influenced by like the Jallo. Like, I guess oh yeah, late yeah, 70s yeah. Jalo. Uh, um, yeah. It's a lot of the plot elements are, are quite similar to Tenebrae. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, just uh, there's uh, a writer who the the plots of his books influence the the murders within the film. There's also a, a kind of bisexual anti heroine, I guess, and uh, just bits and pieces. Obviously, it's more coherent. Because uh, um, as much as we all love Dario Argento, it's his. It's, it's not Hollywood become, mainstream, is it? Yeah, his parts become very kaleidoscopic. Yeah, I, th- oh. I think they're taking a lot of that stuff and they're putting it in the Hollywood mainstream, may- maybe for the first time, and w- with with such explicit kind of. Uh, and we've had explicit gore before, but the mm. the sex here is probably as far as anyone pushed it at that mm-hmm. time and uh yeah so from an american perspective it's very shocking it is and and davlin uh verhoven so i've had a real deep dive into his filmography he made uh he made a similar film about a, a heroine uh called the fourth man hmm yeah I, re- I read about this i i must admit i've not seen 
anywhere near enough of his of, of his films. So it does feel like he's um you know he's taken those elements from the film that he made back in the the Netherlands and like you said he's uh he's he's putting the American spin on it. But one of the things we can definitely say is uh is this opening sex violence colliding into into one you mentioned Jallo. I am so glad you said it because to me this is like a slasher film. This opening, <laughs> this opening scene. Yes, we've got, um, you know, we've got like this explicit sex, um, but and he's like being sort of tied up like he's on a rack, and he looks like he's in pain, and it's totally mm. over the top because uh, you know me, guys, self-proclaimed uh, love guru over here. <laughs> um, but like I, I don't know anybody who could uh, could keep up with uh, this type of. <laughs> I don't know how to say it without uh, giggling, and I don't want us to go into like pure, just immature, uh, like giggling about it. But it, it's so over the top, isn't it? it was yeah, just, it, it's crazy over the top. But then when um... thrashing about like a dolphin. Yeah, like crazy. Like it would snap. It was just craziness. But anyway, the, when um, when the unseen blonde goes to grab the ice pick and then we get the slasher element i mean it's like a horror film right mm. she goes ballistic mm-hmm. and starts fully going at it and one of the things that i'm really surprised at in looking at the discourse around this film is that more of the horror community haven't embraced basic instinct because in my eyes there are elements of this that are yeah. pure like you said horror film stuff if you look at scream for example they kind of dissect it in that and they're talking about who could possibly be the killer and uh the the high school kids in the movie say um you know uh, it the killer totally could have been a woman hello sharon stone basic yeah. instinct and then they kind of <laughs> dissect it like that and they say oh it was just that was just an ice pick you know um <laughs> these people were gutted blah 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 but the you know they they reference it in 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 scream and that's really important i think because it's it shows that it, it has been thought of for its horror aspects too well she's she's like freddy freddy's got the knives the finger knives uh jason's got what the i guess it's the machete is probably yeah. as famous in it tramel's got the ice mm. pick okay it's less um you know it's not as big but my God, does it do some damage? Is it is it a phallic object? Shall we do that now? Oh, it's a phallic object, isn't it? Let's 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 get round. No one has ice picks, do they? Like, do you have an ice pick, Matt, in your in your kitchen? In I don't. I I kind of stab at the bag of ice with uh, you know some scissors or something like that. In <laughs> in the we we keep it in the freezer, and I kind of stab at that. But I I do have a bit of a basic instinct flashback every time I do it. But, <laughs> I, I don't actually have an ice pick, but maybe I should invest in one. The special makeup effects done by Robotin, and oh my God, are they great, isn't it? Mm. When, the, oh, when yeah. the ice pick goes through, yeah. it's like the eye, isn't it? It is. It's, yeah, it's the eye, nose, it's the nose and I think. muzzle. <laughs> is it the nose? I was trying to pause it. Yeah, I, I felt like maybe it was the nose. I read that it was the eye, but uh, it's the prosthetic head, and that that shot was actually cut out of the ITV version. It was one of those mm. things when I revisited it. I that's one of the the things that I noticed was uh, a little bit longer and a little bit more laboured as far as the the Verhoeven, the classic Verhoeven gore. Mm, yeah, I remember when. So we we watched it. Um... It would have been last week, I guess. Me and uh, me and my girlfriend watched this, and Rob Bottin's name came up in the credits. And it had been so long since I'd seen it. I don't think I'd seen it since uh, I was a kind of you know the filthy early teens scumbag. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the bulk of this film was was 
almost entirely new to me. And um, I just remember seeing his name and thinking, well, what the fuck is Rob Bettine going to do on this? And then you see that yeah. immediately. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, the, the chest stabbing. Uh, there's also a bit of a question mark over who that is in the opening scene um, and who actually performed it. And as far as I can tell, it is Sharon Stone. Right. And uh, on the audio commentary there, um, Verhoeven says that no body doubles were used at all. Right. Throughout the duration of the film. So the question is, is it, um, is it Gene Triplehorn or is it Sharon Stone or is it a mix of the two? Mm. But one story I found might give us the clue because the, the guy that played Johnny Boz, the rock star, his, uh, partner went on a TV show and talked about how Sharon Stone got a bit overzealous and stabbed a bit too hard at the blood packs on his chest oh. and actually ended up puncturing his, uh, his skin and left some permanent scars. So oh, wow. if we put those two things together, that is actually Sharon Stone and perhaps therefore definitely Catherine mm. Trammell in the opening scene. Okay. Well, that's interesting because again, it feeds into how you read the entirety of the film, doesn't it? Because yeah. um, mm-hmm. it depends how you want to look at uh, the character of Catherine Trammell, which we'll get to. Um, but before we do, can we, can we discuss mm. my favorite actor of the era? MD, Michael Douglas. Um, I, I love the, in- yeah. I love the introduction of the San Francisco police because again, this is where I think Verhoeven and the script, I will give the credit to the script as well because I think he said he would shoot the script as was written. There were very little changes apart from ones, um, involving some of the controversy, which we'll get into when we, when we discuss that. Um, but the idea that these, these police, this police department, which is, incredibly male dominated i don't think we see a female police woman do we we don't see one you see one uh she's black and she's been hit on by uh, a guy like pushed up against a wall and and hit on by a cop uh ah, so yeah. i think the only female cop we see she's actually being pestered by a bloke so that's quite revealing to hmm. oh there you go then but the way that they walk in like he's got the michael douglas persona going on hasn't he? he's like he's confident brash uh, full of himself, got the glasses, walking up with It, it was uh, a fantastic shorthand because uh, The Streets of San Francisco was the 70s TV show that um, yeah. Michael Douglas starred in. I've never seen it, but he, he it seems like he's just continuing that that kind of aesthetic from there. And as, as soon as you see him, it's on. You just buy it and it's it's great casting. He's, he's, just in it. he's one of those interesting actors. I'm going to explain my love of Douglas. Uh, and I think it's because I've got, real respect for somebody who has clearly had a lot of privilege in his life. Um, his father, Kirk, mm-hmm. is, you know, widely renowned as one of the, the great archetypal heroes of the golden age of cinema. You know, he played Spartacus, Pass of Glory. I mean, you could reel them off. There's hundreds of films. And for Michael Douglas to be his son, to go into acting, it would be easy for him to have just kind of cherry-picked the the sort of the same type of film where he's just that atypical hero and i love the fact that he he pivoted away you know he does the wolf of wall street wins an oscar kind of comes out the shadow of his father and then just starts playing scumbags and i just loved it and it feeds straight into his kind of persona certainly his uh, on-screen persona that he's a bit shady he's a little bit of a shit and you know fatal attraction this um even romance in the stone but because he's got such kind of, he's so enigmatic, 
I always just kind of side with him, even though he's a complete and utter scumbag. <laughs> Every time in this film, Nick Curran is one of the worst cops on 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 screen. He's rubbish at his job. <laughs> yeah, he's um, he kills people, kills innocent people, left, right, and centre. Yeah. And, uh, and he makes all the wrong decisions, which gets, you know, his, uh, his partner killed and, and we'll get into whether or not Beth did or did not, but let's say that Beth didn't. And yet at the end, I was, fe- I feared for him. I was like, oh, I, I hope he doesn't get killed. <laughs> Nuts. Well, he plays the man in decline very well. He's like mm. his own worst enemy and he's kind of put upon and you can see it on his face and he makes all these bad moral decisions. And he's, he's in all of these, uh, uh, erotic thrillers. He's in Fatal Attraction. He's in Disclosure and he's in Basic Instinct. That's the three of the big ones. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to go out there on a limb and just say, um, he is, he did what Keanu Reeves and Bruce Willis did for action stars for like atypical archetypal white leading men like all the anxieties of the era are put upon michael douglas to to kind of get us through them you know the career woman who is your equal i mean obviously the film has its politics where she ends up going nuts and being a typical psycho you could probably say the same about this but one of the, the reasons why i love basic instinct is that michael douglas is the star and he gets he's outflanked at Every scene by a nobody at the time in Sharon Stone and the female mm-hmm. characters in this dominate all of the male typical authority, uh, authority figures. And, and this, and you could say the same about falling down where he's like this put upon white guy who wants everything yeah. to return to the status quo. It was just, that was the Douglas thing. And I think that's why I love mm-hmm. him so much is he, he kind of made that more acceptable to feel like, you know what? We need to change. We've got to change because. Things are changing around us, and I, I'm, that's why I think he's great in the film because he he allows that to happen. Because he he looks like a moron in this film most of the time. He's got some of the uh, those great scenes where he has to kind of remove his sunglasses and deliver uh, a kind of a poignant line, and it's very kind of David Caruso, Horatio Kane hmm. stuff. And he could have gone that route, you know, but he but he didn't. And I, I heard that he wanted in as far as Basic Instinct because he felt like explicit sex scenes were disappearing from cinema at the time yeah perhaps due to uh the aids epidemic of the 80s and cinema had changed a bit and he really wanted to do something with that that kind of weight um i mean i i don't know he was the first person that i ever heard uh, described as a sex maniac do you remember when that was kind of the part <laughs> yeah. the parlance of the time but uh yeah, I, the, the sex addiction has become a more serious thing you know and people discuss it more these days but you know the term sex maniac was like i just think of michael douglas and you know, yeah sorry, Mike, but you know <laughs> well yeah, it's, I, it's, I love him too i'm i'm i think he's great in terms of like sex scenes being put in films for for a purpose rather than just um we have to make sure that somebody gets partially naked because that's what you know the morons want to see Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of like exploring, especially exploring like the outer reaches of, of what sexuality means for, uh, human psychology. I can think, um, stuff like, uh, uh, like Oshima, like in the realm of the senses. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a whole, there's a whole genre of, of what you could charitably describe as weirdo Japanese erotic cinema, which is, you know, the idea is not to titillate at all. It's to kind of explore the, 
the, the the boundaries of of what people would 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 be into with each other and what that means for you know intimacy and whatever but um yeah uh, not so not just in terms of how explicit it was but the the seriousness which sounds like a weird thing to say in a film that's as kind of brazenly uh over the top as this but the seriousness with which that's treated or the centrality that's given so the plot is kind of is kind of unique, I guess. Mm, I don't know think, if this is really the, the the forum. Do you think do you think Basic Instinct is the kind of the American equivalent of those films, or do you think no, it's no, no. a bit more exploitative? Of, <laughs> it's of, it's uh, yeah, but but in a in a way that's revealing in and of itself, in that it it reveals how it, the it's American kind of, sensibility. Yeah, it's, it's t- or, yeah, and he's I, I guess he's Dutch, but you know the the Hollywood sensibility maybe. Yeah, mm. I, I think that's I think that's probably more like it. Like that's his kind of you know he's he's pushing to 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 kind of exploit what he sees as the american attitude towards sex you know mm. that because uh, american cinema can be kind of puritanical even up to this day if you think i don't know yeah. i can only really think of stuff like the 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 handmaiden or like uh ang lee's lost caution of films or uh, blue is the warmest color yeah well, was you know very kind of explicit but you know a million miles away from basic instinct yeah, exactly. Steve, Steve McQueen, Shame with Michael Fassbender, kind of explores it, but yeah, it is a, to an it's extent, still an, yeah. it's an independent I, film, though. It's not a studio yeah, film. Although a big star, Fassbender's yeah, a big, big star. Yeah, big star. Mm. Um, am I allowed to say that I thought that film was silly and weird? <laughs> of course, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just, um, I, I realized that, you know, it was, they were treating the, the, the subject with, with a great degree of seriousness, but Jesus. Mm. I mean, there's a point at which you can take it so seriously that it goes through the other side and becomes fucking absurd. Yeah. I, I loved Hunger though when I, I, I was yeah, looking through the channels and I got Hunger and I couldn't switch it off. I watched it all the way to the end. It was mm. just incredible. Yeah, no, but I think you're right about um, Verhoeven kind of almost sending up the American conservative view of uh, of sex in films and also sexuality, uh, which is, you know, I think one of the one of the main things that Catherine Chamel represents is that kind of that liberal idea of like I do not give you know I I, I she says it I don't want to be so explicit you know we are trying to be a family show but it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's not, not going to happen on this <laughs> I don't think that's an aspiration no, yeah, it's an aspiration it's, it's attempt to live up to yeah but you know she says like you know I fuck for pleasure there's no there's no um, she's She's as callous as, uh, as the men are. We meet the cops and they're, they're kind of idiots. Uh, and they're kind of treating this without the respect it deserves. Like it's been a brutal murder and they're making jokes about jizz <laughs> and, uh, and coke. <laughs> and then when, um, right. the next scene, uh, just to kind of get into the, the opening scenes when, you know, Gus and Nick, uh, straight away mistaken identity. They think that they're talking to Catherine Tramell and it's, uh, it's her lover. It's Roxy. Yeah. Really good casting. She does really good she casting. Has a resemblance. Verhoeven wanted to to have a, a lesbian scene between them. Of course, he did. Uh, and originally, that scene started with uh, Roxy uh, nude sunbathing on the roof, and he was going to crane it down, or I don't know what he was going to do, helicopter it down, or something. But uh, he, he wanted to start with the image of her nude sunbathing on the roof, and then come down to the detectives, and then she comes down and answers the door. But uh, some of that stuff w- was cut out. It, apparently, for pacing, uh, he was trying to fit it in. But uh, the, the the lesbian scene between them, he, Verhoeven thought that to mention that Catherine is bisexual and not show it 
would actually be, you know, to the detriment of, of the film. But mm-hmm. you can't help but feel he just wanted to somehow squeeze a, a lesbian scene in there. But um, I think Esterhaus, um didn't want it. And uh, I think some people even left the picture because of it. But it, there was a bit of a reshuffle. And uh, Verhoeven ended up going right back to what Esterhaus originally wrote and, and sticking to that. Well, shall we? I mean, it feels like it's fitting, and it, we would be remiss not to discuss the the controversy at the time. And and to be fair, we reached out on Twitter, and uh, we got no responses. So it was a shame, really. Uh, we wanted to know what uh, the LGBTQ plus community felt about the film now, sort of twenty eight years removed. Um, but we didn't really get enough. And I've read some articles and looked into the history, but just for context. The film was um, was sort of widely um, campaigned against by that community. Uh, mm. They, you know, they picketed the, on set. Um, p- there were arrests made. It seems like uh, people and- were even making, like, openly making suggestions of uh, that. Well, if you were to, for example, uh, gender switch Michael Douglas's character, it would somehow that would that would help. I guess which, which well, that's, I guess that's interesting because uh Catherine uh, sorry Kathleen Turner was originally hmm. uh set to play uh a bisexual cop. She was in the role of in the Douglas role. Yeah. So it was it was going to be that's that's where that kind of element was was going to come from and I think that was one of the original ways they were going to tackle this and it, it, yeah. it evolved into into a, a male in the detective role. So hmm. I guess that there are ways in which that would that would help to I mean, there's, it's a weird one because there's, there's a lot of, um, stereotypes being played upon, but I, I think probably the idea that, um, a woman who is interested in women can be quote unquote turned by the right guy, which I don't think that's what's going on in the story of this film. I think maybe if you read the plot synopsis, you might think that was what was happening, but that, that is kind of the arc, isn't it? She does end up with him. Uh, yeah. But, you know, what happens to him after the final frame, we don't know, but she does yeah. kind of end up with him. But I, I, I got the impression that it was the, you know, I, but then, yeah, he's not going to last long. He's not going to last long. And then <laughs> I, I guess it's, it always seems like she is very much in control and chooses who she wants oh, yeah. to be with at any point. You, you get the impression that there's genuine feeling between her and Roxy, but again, is given, it all part of the game? Yeah, given the way it's played out, it's, you know, everyone is, is portrayed kind of terribly. Interestingly, Devon, that was, uh, Roger Ebert's in his review. Hmm. He made mention of that. And let's, and let's be frank. We're in a film noir genre. Moral ambiguity is essential. And all the characters, including our favorite Gus, ends up being a little bit of, a little bit, <laughs> you know, morally objectionable. Yeah. And so I'm not to say, I'm not going to say, uh, or speak for those people that, that still find this, uh, repulsive and misrepresentation of, mm. uh, of a demographic. You know, we had the discussion in Science of the Lambs and it really, it really did mm. sort of open my eyes up to how it can be construed in certain ways. And you're right. She ends up with the man, but like, it depends how you watch the film. I yeah. see it as all part of the game and he is going to get it. And if he had said he still wanted Rugrats at the end, he would have got it there and then. Um, luckily, <laughs> I, he said, fuck the Rugrats. But maybe kind of the, the more damaging one is, is the idea of equating, uh, bisexuality or pansexuality with 
deviance and yeah, being you know, unstable mon- and, monstrosity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and that is, I mean, that is valid, I guess. And, yeah, no, and it's it's absolutely. it's valid in the sense, much like when we were discussing Silence of the Lambs, it's not to do with um, you can have an individual portrayal of uh, of of a character of any type. Um, as, as being either negative, positive hero or villain, but when that's the only representation you have, uh, and you don't have a, you know, you don't have a wealth of characters to pull from and that way you can, you can say that, well, we'll do this one because this, you know, this makes this particular type of character seem awful. This is kind mm. of, this is the only film really of, of its era that, that has, uh, a, a bisexual character and, um, maybe the, the Wachowskis have a, have a great, uh, rebuttal to this a few years later in, in Bound, which is yeah, a yeah, kind yeah. of ace, kind of steamy-ish erotic thriller, but, um, really flips the tables. Well, there was a Sharon Stone quote, um, about everyone in this movie is dark, twisted, and weirdly driven. And then mm. she says, uh, like Michael's character is the good guy. You know, she, she could see, Sharon Stone could at least see that, that everyone is uh uh flawed yeah yeah it's it's not uh i don't know if it's a misogynistic film there's an there's another quote i found uh a los angeles representative of the u.s national organization of women uh said that we were expecting it to be homophobic but it's also one of the most misogynistic films in recent memory so i know it was picketed initially for the homophobic uh mm. aspects that they read in the script um but you know, do you think it's a misogynistic film? Oh, I couldn't disagree any any more if I if I if I mm. thought I could. Um, I mean, I'll try and articulate where I'm coming from. But like I said earlier, Michael Douglas is a moron in this, and uh, and all the male characters, mm-hmm. I think they're portrayed. They've got like that. Um, it's men talking to men in the company of men and no one else around them, and I think he captures that because there's a there's a kind of laddish you know every time that they're not in the presence of Catherine they, they're they almost like demeaning or trying to establish themselves as above her liberation and her the way that she portrays herself but every time they're in her midst they're completely transfixed they make she is the one that has all the power in the film and uh, and I, I see that for all the female characters I guess the problem is the Beth scene probably um throws a lot of shade on what i'm saying yeah but I, I i took i took mm. beth as representing a kind of conventional view of how these films would normally play you know she constantly goes back to michael douglas's character mm. even though he treats her like a piece of shit and then he's going to get his comeuppance i guess maybe you could say that had we seen had the ending been a stinger where douglas gets it then you could it would it would be more explicit that that is what the film is trying to say. But I think if you watched it on a surface level, I can see how you could think that it was misogynistic. Sorry, some of the things that passed me by on those initial viewings when I was younger were the, the Hazel Dobkins subplot and the Roxy subplot to a certain extent. Uh, you mentioned the Rugrats before, and if he'd said that he wanted them, maybe he gets it there. And I think that's, that's probably true because Tremel has no desire to start a family. And a, a lot of this is uh, could be read as a, a feminist battle against uh, um, conventional what what it's like to be a, a woman at that at that time. So you've got Catherine who uh, liked having sex with Boz, 
past tense. Um, you know, and this idea that Nick can survive if he keeps up these good performances in the bedroom, but when he fails, Catherine is going to kind of dispose of him. Mm. And then those two subplots with Hazel Dobkins and Roxy, uh, there's a quote, it might be Gus. He said, uh, this young farm girl got tired of all that attention going to her little brothers. So she fixed them just like Hazel Dobkins fixed her whole family, except young Roxy here didn't use a wedding present. She used daddy's razor. So the female killers in the film all aim their vitriol at the men in their lives and specifically the men in their families. I can't remember the, the exact details, but Hazel Dobkins, the, the, the older woman that she visits. Oh, in yeah, she just basically uh, kills her entire family, right? Yeah, she wiped everyone out and, uh, and Roxy killed her brothers with her father's razor. And that's, you know, there's a statement in there somewhere. And, and then if you look at, um, Catherine Tremell herself, she, she killed her own parents, allegedly. You know, if you look at the, uh, the reading from the first time book that, that yeah. we see that, uh, the character in that book kills, uh, his parents with, a, in a, in a staged, uh, plane crash. And then we get the details of Catherine's parents who are killed in a, is it a boating accident or something like that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, all, all the hints are there that the women are taking out the men in their lives and really taking control. And, uh, a lot of this anger is directed at the, the, the family unit too, which is kind of interesting. Well, the, the one scene I'm going to, I'm going to put my, my hat on and, and plant the flag is, and we're jumping way ahead but I think it's important is when Douglas has been kicked off the case and he's kind of, he's, he's left Beth and he goes back to Catherine. Um, I think it's after he's been, uh, Nielsen's been killed and mm-hmm. she's finished the book and the way that she dumps him and my fiance, uh, again, excuse the crudity, but Glaswegian, she was like, Oh, it's good to see that the, that she's actually fucked and chucked him. I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what she does. She's yeah. like, I'm finished with you. Your character's dead. And, yeah. and it's all part of the mm-hmm. game because then she flips it the next time they have an, an interaction. But Douglas is fuming. And I think that is like, that is the statement. He's like, what the hell is going on? He can't believe that he has been dumped. He's, cause he's like, I'm falling in love with you. And he is, like I said, to me, watching the film again. I was like, everything has been reversed and this feels very intentional. Yeah. An intentional subversion, I think from, from Verhoeven or from maybe from the script, but yeah, I, I got that too. Well, I can't believe we've gone over an hour and we've not talked about, uh, the lady herself. Sharon. Sharon Stone. When they go to the, uh, the beach house, I mean, it's amazing. It's like a Bond villains beach house, isn't it? And she sat there in front of these, mm-hmm. um, you know, this wonderful, beautiful view and the, the waves are crashing against the rock. How, how amazing is Sharon Stone in this film, she's so so good. I can't imagine anyone, any other actress uh, taking on the role. To be honest, yeah, yeah. I think she's thirty three here. I've I've heard some different numbers, but she's thirty three or thirty four, and she needed to strike it big. I think because it, it had been kind of bit parts up until up until now, and she really needed to to have that big hit. And it's this classic noir, femme fatale, but um, heightened. Uh, and it's it's very literal. We'd seen the femme fatale before many times, but it was kind of implied. You know, the sexuality was implied and uh, the desires were implied. But here it's all very literal. And she just owns it. She she steals the entire movie. 
with this kind of insouciance that's really appealing. And uh, I think it's her career defining apex moment really and it's been it's been spoofed so much with the leg cross you've seen it in the simpsons you've seen it she's done it herself on stage um you know uh, awards ceremonies and uh you know on tv talk shows and stuff like that um so i think i think she knows that this is the peak and it it was kind of unfortunate that we've seen her try and do basic instinct too and have it not quite work you know hanging out with stan collymore i don't know what was going on It just didn't work at all. And, uh, it's not her age and it's not, it's not her, it's got nothing to do with her talent. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's a bit sad that she felt the need to revisit that because I, I think what she did in ni- 95 in, um, in Scorsese's Casino was, was maybe my favorite performance of hers. But I, I think it's un, it's undoubtable as, as far as which one is the most iconic and that will be remembered for the longest. And that's going to be, this one in in basic instinct do you think maybe it's just that hollywood didn't know what to do with her i i think you're right devon i think she got pure typecasted like you are going to be the sultry sex icon for the next however many years and actually if you look at a filmography she had a six-year run where she was in major studio films and then the TV, like obviously now there is really no difference. If anything, television is kind of taken over. Hmm. Um, but you know, she then starts doing like law and order and stuff like that, which, you know, not to be, um, disparaging of law and order. Love it. Love a bit of special victims unit, but it's, it, it's, uh, an indicator of her kind of star waning. And she just, you know, she did slither. I remember she did Sam Raimi's kind of really perfunctory western the quick and the dead which was yeah. fine but it was right it was a bit of a you know that passed you by you're right about casino she's great in it but she's such an unlikable character in that film um really yeah. unlikable yeah. um and again i think i wonder if that goes against it and then the last thing i remember seeing her in um was sphere which was dreadful yeah yeah so um well she just she in, just sort of petered out in that uh in that little clump of like you say the the her her window of opportunity as a as a big hitter you also had um the specialist which if you want to talk about hollywood depictions of on-screen sex if you want to flip it completely to the most awkward and perfunctory uh you could possibly imagine uh male butts uh, that we don't need to see uh in both films and you could tell two actors that did could not stand each other you could tell like (laughs) on screen that there is no chemistry and and sliced alone is no Douglas. <laughs> I was I was going to ask you specifically, gals, about whether you had a, a a note, whether you had a note for Stallone and Stone as the uh, as the resident expert on on screen sexy. All I'll say is, anyone who wants to replicate the sex scene in The Specialist had better have a big wet room because if you've got a normal <laughs> bathroom shower com- bath combo, there is no way you're going to be able to to do the lying down on the side up against the marble. Okay. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Although I, w- I will say, for unmotivated ass shots of of the guys, um, that I would go the other way and say, uh, I. For one, for the purposes of balance, um, right. uh, impressed that they put as much man ass as they did in Basic Instinct. Yeah, but do we oh, need yeah, a, he's forty-eight years old? Are, are the women really pleased <laughs> to be looking at the? the I think the, it's the more just walk the, of Douglas. <laughs> uh, maybe. 
Um, maybe they are. Maybe. They, maybe yeah. Are. But also, I just I, I feel like that that level of kind of vulnerability and the kind of the gaze of the camera. I feel like if if you're gonna yeah. if you're gonna do that to to Sharon Stone's character, who is obviously kind of stunning, then you gotta do, you gotta do it to your your leading actor as well. Oh yeah, I was just going to go back to Sharon for a second. There's there's a moment in Total Recall where she's actually very very good. She's playing this combination of sweet and deadly in quick succession. She's kind of uh, she's posing as uh, Quaid's wife, and uh, you know she was acting in that one for Verhoeven, and and he really wanted her to be to be in this movie, and he could see in that moment that she was playing uh, both sides really well, and it's really cool that she got the chance ahead of some of the other actresses that were in line to play Catherine and she was brave enough to do the nudity and uh I I which obviously gets your foot in the door with with Verhoeven but I I think she was rewarded for for that risk that she you know it kind of paid off for her I I I think at least in the short term can we talk about the interrogation scene which is probably the most famous scene of the film and certainly the most iconic for one particular um, shot, but yeah. let, before we get into the Newman's stuff, sweaty lip, can we talk about the way, the lighting and the way that it's set up? Because one of the things that I um, I really admired about it is that normally it's so hyper realistic. Again, the whole film is. It's like it is not a realistic depiction of an investigation. Because when have you ever seen eight men in like interviewing one person on a chair? Yeah. Normally you see a plate of glass and I love the fact that the production design and Verhoeven have said, no, we'll remove that barrier. They're all in the room. The way it's lit, it's like a performance, isn't it? She's on stage and uh, she completely enraptures these guys. And Wayne Knight and his sweaty lip licking yeah. is just, it's, it's both disgusting and I couldn't <laughs> take my eyes off it. It was absolutely fantastic. I'm John Corelli, Mr. Mel, Assistant District Attorney. I have to inform you this session's being taped. This is Captain Talcott. My pleasure. And Lieutenant Walker. Hi. Can we get you anything? A cup of coffee? No, thank you. Are your attorneys going to join us? Ms. Trammell has waived her rights to an attorney. Did I miss something? I told him that you wouldn't want an attorney present. No. Why have you waived your right to an attorney, Mr. Mel? Why did you think I wouldn't want one? I told him you wouldn't want to hide. I was wondering if anyone got to the bottom of uh, the the leg crossing scene and who, who knew what, and you know, um, was she really privy to what what Verhoeven was doing? Was there any uh, duplicity involved, or uh, mm. was it a case of? Uh, I mean, I, I found this thing that she agreed to do it. And then later her agents freaked out when they realized that she was going to be fully nude in the scene and they tried to pull the scene from the movie and Verhoeven obviously refused and kept it in. Verhoeven's story is that, that, uh, she knew all along and that, uh, she was actually comfortable with the nudity. Uh, but unfortunately Sharon Stone later on had, had saying that was saying that she was tricked and uh, duped into into doing it removing the underwear because of a lighting uh problem something was reflecting <laughs> i don't really know what but yeah I, I don't know if anyone got to the bottom of it i've not looked into any of the conspiracy theories but certainly just the way it plays out on screen i can't imagine that there's any room for ambiguity you know where a camera is it's a strange one and i don't want to jump in either side for obvious reasons but it, if you think about how iconic the scene is 
and uh, the idea that if Verhoeven was lying, uh, then uh, you know Sh- Sharon Stone isn't responsible for any of any of that. Um, you know, amazing stuff that followed, you know, the, the empowerment of, of that scene and, uh, what she did in that scene. But at the same time, if, uh, if Verhoeven's telling the truth, it means that, 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 you know, someone else is twisting, twisting what really happened. And, uh, and, and, and maybe Verhoeven is entirely responsible for this, this kind of key feminist moment and this empowerment of women card that, that, uh, Stone has used later on in lots of, uh, other aspects of like media and things. The story I, I read was, um, and I've uh, heard it as well in an interview with Astahas, is that it's not in the script. He gives full credit to Verhoeven who connected the idea because the scene before, again, it's all part of the manipulation is that, you know, is Catherine Trammell like this supernatural being who's able to manipulate everyone around her and kind of be two steps ahead of everyone and know how they're going to react, which is how I look at the film. Um, she gets undressed mm. knowing because she's left the newspaper articles of old shooter mm. killing some tourists on the, on the table when they go and visit her, uh, for the second time. And, um, and she undresses in front of him. He yeah. made the connection that, right, she's not wearing an underwear because we've seen her get changed, um, and she's naked. Mm. So then Verhoeven said, right, we're going to put this shot in right at the end when all the guys are already enraptured. And what I love about that scene is, you know, it kind of gets overshadowed by this one moment. So I don't want to trivialize it because if Verhoeven was lying, then that is an utter Mm. shit scumbag uh, thing to do. We don't know, but I don't think you probably needed the shot. But for the the iconography around the scene, the shot is, is, it's woven in, isn't it? Like you said, it's lampooned in every you know, bad and good satire film that comes after it. And people remember it, and they remember the film for that one shot. Did you kill Mr. Boz, Mr. Tremell? I'd have to be pretty stupid to write a book about killing and then kill somebody the way I described it in my book. I'd be announcing myself as the killer. But the answer is no. I didn't kill him. Do you use drugs, Mr. Tremell? Cocaine? Have you ever fucked on cocaine, Nick? That 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 kind of leads into if that is a lie, and then the kind of misogyny of what he, you know, could have done in that moment has actually led to to the the overall performance of of Sharon Stone being, you know, this whole empowerment of women thing that that came from it so i i don't uh, we can't say what happened can we but it, it's it's an infamous kind of moment but it it, it shouldn't be uh it, it shouldn't overrule the rest of the things that she that she does because she really is great in in this role and uh it, it's the, the bit that everyone remembers but um you know as a as a character she plays it incredibly well like throughout but then we come to the i would say probably the most controversial element of the film which is when nick yeah. Like in all this pent up anger, it's basically assaults Beth. I, I read that Esther House said that he wanted it to just be rough sex, but um, you know she says no, and there's there's no doubt it's a it's a rape, and it is quite it's it's highly problematic, I think now. But I mean, is it necessary? I wrote problematic too, and then I immediately went to the Twitter kind of twenty twenty hashtag Me Too thing, and I don't mean it in in that sense because you know people behave abhorrently 
in life, and this should be reflected in, in films. Rapes happen, murder happens. And they've even been bisexual or lesbian killers. And if you look at like, uh, Aileen Warnos and things like that, you know, these, these things do happen. But th- this scene is, is a really dodgy one for me because it, it plays very strangely. It reminded me of Straw Dogs in a lot of ways. It, 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 mm. uh, it's one of those am- ambiguous rapes where, uh, I wrote date rape, you know, it's yeah. this idea of that, sh- that she's into it and it's, and it's tackled in a very erotic, uh, way it's hypersexualized and she's very clearly okay with things until a certain point where it it switches and then she's very clearly at odds with what's happening in the scene and and, and if you look at what's really happening in the scene it's an alcoholic loaded on whiskey taking his frustrations out on a consenting partner mm. but a- as that scene evolves beth is clearly not okay with the force and uh, the manner of it and it's a strange one because when I was younger, I, I don't remember it reading as a rape, maybe because it was quite heavily edited, uh, but it played just as another sex scene in, in the movie. Uh, and it's quite, you could say it's irresponsible filmmaking in, in a sense because Curran is framed as the hero of, of the piece. And, you know, he's attaining kind of satisfaction from this one off, uh, sorry, this on off relationship with Beth. Uh, and the complications and the blurred lines can happen in life, you know, to certain people in certain situations. And, you know, it, it, it's just a strange one. It's, it's quite a sordid, sleazy uh, moment. And I, I don't know if Verhoeven is, is the one to kind of tackle something like that in a neurotic thriller. It's a little bit too heavy. It, it seemed a little uh, too much and a bit out of place, particularly on the, on the second or third viewing of, you know, revisiting basic instinct. Mm hmm. It's um it's interesting because I I this week I watched his um his most recent film L from uh, 2016 which is um which has got I think about four rape scenes in them um but I think you've a- mm. absolutely identified the major problem with the with it in this film is the ambiguity and the you know the idea that this is may have been written as just rough sex and it's supposed to be primal and they're supposed to be tapping back into that you know, quote unquote, basic instinct, but, um, it, it, it wouldn't play. You're right. She she says, Nick, she says, please. She says, no, it's, it's all there. If you, it's, it's you all there. The and, version. And in, and in the film L, which, uh, is a French film and it's very, very French. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's about, a a woman of, of power in a male dominated area of gaming. And she's trying to discover the person that, that rapes her at the beginning of the film. Uh, and, it's all the stuff that Verhoeven likes to deal with gender politics, social commentary on, on, on kind of how we uh, have interplay between each other and off its dynamics, which this film's all got. Yeah. Maybe he's learned a few lessons because there's no ambiguity uh, in my opinion mm. in the, in the film L with those rape scenes. Whereas in this, um, I mean, I don't know about you, Devlin. It's an uncomfortable watch, right? Yeah. I, I found this one difficult to watch. Uh, I guess, like with anything, you know, you, the the more you go through life, the more you kind of uh, uh, gather experiences and perspective, and and yeah, it it was uncomfortable to sit through. And I I agree with you, Matt, that terrible things happen, and that um you you probably you don't have to shy away from showing these things on screen. But yeah, in 
given the 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 genre we're dabbling in and the and the balls to the wall in kind of insanity of the rest of the film um and the, it just it feels like the rest of the film is, is is dealing with things in such a heightened way yeah uh as to take it into the realm of like pulp and while it's very very well made pulp it's still kind of pulp and there's something about this scene which just has this kind of really uncomfortable visceral kind of reality to it which is 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 a tough watch and um yeah again like you say responsibility as a filmmaker but um we always i guess have to say that everything is a product of its time and i I just i don't think that Mm. the awareness would have been there i think they probably would have just thought they were pushing the envelope again it's an odd scene if if you look outside the window there's a kind of an aerobics type of workout going on every time when you when you look through her window that that class is going on yeah, I Even don't know why it's to... there, whether it trivializes yeah. things. I, I don't know. I don't know what the point of that is, but it just doesn't, it doesn't play as a serious thing. And, and I know, you know, Michael Douglas is a rat character in this. He's, he's not a, a great guy and he's not really the hero of the piece, but he is the central male lead. Uh, and yeah, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't play well. One thing I wanted to say though, um, is that I think I was a bit harsh on Jean Triplehorn when we discussed her in Waterworld because mm. I sort of dismissed her as being playing second second fiddle to Sharon Stone in this film, which she does. However, I'm going to say that she is doing an incredible job in this because she has to do she's basically spinning like three plates, isn't she? She has to be a sort of credible mm-hmm. love interest for Nick to possibly show him the light to get move away from the depths of hell and going with Catherine. She also needs to be a credible suspect and be a good red herring or potentially the killer. And uh, and she's also having to be this professional individual who's trying to psychoanalyze the murders. And I think Jean Triplehorn, with the short amount of time that she's got on screen, really does do a great job in this film. And uh, I, I just wanted to kind of make sure that I, I said that because I think I was a bit too dismissive of a, um, had it, having not seen basic mm. instinct when we discussed Waterworld, mm. Um, but yeah, uh, that was all I just wanted to say that she's great. And she looks amazing as well. I mean, she's, she's absolutely stunning. Yeah. In this film. I, yeah, I would agree. I, I remember we were all a bit down on her, which mm-hmm. seems fair. It wasn't a particularly good performance in Waterworld. She was very flat. Um, but there are caveats there, which is, it's, you know, she wasn't given a lot to work with and it would appear that her, her, uh, scenes were kind of butchered as well. Mm. Well, one interesting mm. thing that she didn't do the nudity in Waterworld could have stemmed from some bad experiences on, uh, on, yeah. the, on this one. Who knows? Cause she did some nudity earlier in, in her career and then refused to do that, that scene in Waterworld. Hey, maybe so. I, when we were saying that, you know, that, that Hollywood struggled to f- find appropriate projects for Sharon Stone, but that I, I do think that the, there was a greater stigma attached to uh to nudity in in film i think it kind of typecast you as a certain type of actress mm-hmm. and it, it yeah. always i guess it plays into a kind of greater misogyny of the film business which is that you're kind of goaded into doing these scenes and you there's a whole kind of shadowy industry of uh of blokes out there who will obsessively catalog nude scenes and stuff mm-hmm. uh so you kind of Oftentimes, maybe that's part of, of what Sharon Stone was, was getting at in the, in the scene that maybe, you know, maybe there was a, a discussion as to how that scene would be used and it was used differently or something. But, yeah. um, I, I, yeah, I do think that, um, 
it would make sense that an actor would would uh, would play a role like this and probably be advised not to do any nude scenes for let's say the next three years because you don't right. want to become that type of actress or something she's really sick you know do you know what she's doing she knows i went to berkeley she knows i knew noah she makes up this story about me She's handing you somebody who's obsessed with her. She didn't hand you to me. She doesn't even know who you are. She told me about a uh, Lisa Hoberman. She knows you'd find out who Lisa Hoberman is. You're a good cop. She tell you casually? Make it seem irrelevant? I mean, did she tell you in bed, Nick? That's what I do. Well, we knew we were to do Basic Instinct. Wanted to talk about that V-neck and that <laughs> club. Um, so mm. Michael Douglas, when he's, um, when he's kind of been properly outed from the police department, you know, he loses the suit, which is important, that conservative restrictive thing. And he chooses to go for a very, very deep green V-neck. And it's, um, mm. it's, it's odd to see a man of his age, uh, sort of swanning around this club, which is, you know, to be fair to it, full of different sexes, different races. They're all, I mean, it's very 90s. I was going to say that the film feels extremely contemporary apart from maybe this scene. Like the way that it looks, it feels very modern, even though it was shot in 92. But you could definitely excommunicate this entire club scene. I don't know what he could have worn to make it better. That is a good point, yeah. Because you can't have him dressing like a 26-year-old. No, I think it's his age that really does them in here. If- if he wears yeah, a leather he's... jacket, they're going to go for him. If he wears any kind of hat, <laughs> he's out. Yeah. Uh, his, his trousers, if, if he wears tight jeans, he's out. If he wears yeah. you know, relaxed fit jeans, he's out. What's great is that you can sort of picture, which is that he he's going through his, his wardrobe. Because that's the great thing is that you can extrapolate out that he would have had to sit in his little crappy apartment and pick out his his special wardrobe that he wanted to wear to the fancy club. And that he would have picked out his old, reliable, what looks to be an M&S knitting jumper. He's <laughs> like, well, this is going to make Mar- me look Marino like Marino wool. Like, yeah, this is going to make me look like a proper dad. I could wear it without a t-shirt. Yeah. And then, and then uh, he's like, yeah, problem solved. Yeah, it's a, it's a real shame because it kind of does get an unintentional laugh. And, um, but, you know, again, the scene is fully charged. You know, we see the, um, the kind of the jealousy between uh, Catherine and Roxy, and some of the dancing is just quite downright outrageous. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, he does all right. He, he doesn't in, fully go for the dance, does he? He he just kind of no, no, he plays the dancing down a bit. He gets hand, he yeah. get handsy, and that's it. Yeah, yeah, he gets very handsy, and there's a there's an eroticism there, but I don't feel. It's very sexy because it's just quite frankly, it's ludicrous. But again, it kind of fits into the Verhoeven aesthetic of just being hyper everything. And I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a, a nightclub in Leeds called Halo, which I think oh, yes. we all went to mm-hmm. once. And that was an old church renovated. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's an aesthetic that we can believe in. Um, but maybe not the dancing and the music. Um, but it kind of fits into that whole descent into hell underground scene that Catherine's clearly a part of. You know, everyone's doing drugs. They're doing drugs in the male bathrooms, not in the females. You know, everyone's mm. um, uber-liberal. Um, mm. So, yeah. I, I, I've been to San Francisco, and I didn't find the club, unfortunately. I, n- I never went. So, <laughs> it's a shame. I needed to find a V-neck. I would have been let in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it, but it leads into the uh, probably the second, well, third most famous scene, which is the sex scene between Douglas and uh, and Stone. And again, mm. just like the opening scene, it's very, uh, it's pretty explicit. But I've seen the storyboards of Verhoeven's, and they are very detailed. I mean, this is, I think they yeah. described it as like choreographing it as if it were a fight scene. And uh, and that's the stuff that you just don't think about, do you, when you're uh, on set, is that actually how unsexy a sex scene would be to shoot. Because yeah. it's just, yeah, we're going to get like, uh, need a couple of frames of that, a couple of frames of that from this angle, from that angle. But um, they do a good job. Like it, it, it it's charged again. It feels. Mm. Well, that's uh that's the thing that came up recently, isn't it? It's uh, um, the idea of uh, safe practice while, while filming mm. uh, nude scenes and sex scenes and that there are now consultants that you can go to and that there are people who will come on set and they will help you, you know, construct the scene and i and i think when you say that it was really storyboarded out i think that's how you have to do it right yeah oh yeah otherwise i mean you don't want somebody just riffing when they're in there because you would you would have people in a very vulnerable state yeah it has to be agreed prior doesn't it yeah you know if if you're if you're making suggestions on the fly you and and you know the crew is all set up and everyone's standing around waiting you don't want to say no so yeah i I think that was one of the three the three scenes in the film that that was cut down we had the the face stabbing at the beginning and then we had the beth date rape which had you know a little bit trimmed out and then this one was the main one and verhoven talks about cutting about uh, 35 to 40 seconds to get this r rating and he he did it through different coverage he he knew that this was going to be a controversial scene so he he shot it from many different angles and just kept resubmitting it uh, until it it got through as an R instead of a, the NC-17. Uh, he says that he he made it a little more elliptical, was the word he used, and a bit less direct. But I've I've seen both mm. versions because I had the the ITV one originally, and then it, it's just yeah, different choice of framing, and uh, it is more explicit and uh, more visceral. The the director's cut. I was worried for Douglas. I thought yeah. he was going to get it again. They do a really yeah. good job of uh, building the suspense. You know, you know, going back to that Hitchcockian um, film noir aesthetic. Um, it, it, it's it's that very thing, and you're like, will she? Won't she? And Douglas has got that face as well, like he's enjoying it, but he's also like, this could be my last moment mm. uh, on this earth. The danger of, of that scene, uh, the, between them, the danger, he talks about it on the beach later when he goes to visit her, and you know, it, it was the danger of maybe being killed in that moment that made it so good. Tell me, Nikki, were you frightened last night? That's the point, wasn't it? That's what made it so good. You shouldn't play this game. Why not? I like it. Narrative-wise, do you reckon that that's uh, why maybe? I mean, we're skipping. Apologies, but if I'm skipping too far ahead, but um, the 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 ambiguous final moment where she doesn't reach for the pick. Her her thing is basically just manipulating people until she gets bored of them, and then she'll just yeah. and then she kills them. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he matches her with such a weird intensity that he's willing to 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 go so far and uh and and risk like you say risk being ice picked in the face mm. that you know he mm. has such a kind of addictive personality that maybe she finds it just intriguing enough to keep him around for a little while longer i think he's on borrowed time but he's he's gonna last longer she's got the same kind of uh supernatural power as as heath ledger's joker in the dark knight where 
if you were to if you were to unpick it, you'd be like, this is actually ridiculous. Like, you, how would you know that the sequence of events would play out in such a way? Interesting, Devlin, that that's your theory because I took it that this was the way that it was all meant to be in her head, and the only reason she didn't kill Nick there and then was she was like, oh, maybe I'll get one more bit of pleasure out of him, and then I'll kill him. Like, he's definitely doomed. Hmm. Um, they do make mention of it in the sequel, but the less said about Basic Instinct 2, the better, apart from Stan Collymore, of course. So, yeah, yeah. I think um, that's how I saw it. It was, it was all part of, you know, to, to quote the Joker, all part of hmm. the plan. Oh, I think, yeah, yeah, I think this sequence is. I just meant that, you know, at the end, just trying to kind of... It's how long he lasts, really. I don't know how long. Yeah. It's just not very long. Because one thing I will say, and you know, I did mention right at the beginning that I think this is a masterpiece, and I think I'm still with it, even though there's the controversial date rape scene. And uh, but the one thing I will say is, as a police procedural, I'm not sure it hangs together. Oh, um, no. I think, uh, <laughs> no, it, it really is one of those. Yeah, it's one of those films where you're like, no, none of this makes. A lick of sense no. of what actually happened, but the um, the you know the the big reveal that they come up with, the big kind of uh, uh, the secret life of of Beth, is is great. Yes, the reveal of it is ridiculous. Of course, when they flash yeah, back and forth <laughs> between well, her wig, two, um... she, that wig yeah. she's got on is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit too dressed to kill that moment. Yeah. yeah, and he's too much of an idiot. Like. I said Oberman. No, I said H- Hoberman. She did say Oberman, but like he never questioned it. <laughs> yeah. He just goes to a computer, types it in, and goes, and that's it. That's the extent of his police work. He's 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 a rubbish cop. Uh, it doesn't hang together as a police procedural. But if you were to watch the film as a as a like I say, a, a, almost like a character study of a, a highly addictive personality against a highly manipulative femme fatale, then that's how I watch the film. But there are moments that Verhoeven leans into the it's Beth. Do you remember the scene when uh, Beth's kind of rescued Nick from the interrogation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they walk down the steps and they almost have like a, a romantic kind of coming together. They have a kiss. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I owe you one. And she's like, ah, you don't owe me anything. They they mm-hmm. drop the, the little subtle visual cue that she's a killer when she smiles yeah. and then we stay on her. And she just put, has a stony face. She just turns to stone right. the moment his back's turned. And you're like, oh, don't trust her. Like, it's always fine. If you if you have to go back and pick through these things, and that's when you start finding the holes. Yeah. Whereas well, uh, when you wa- if you're watching it and you're being carried along in the moment, then I always feel like it's done its job. Yeah, well, I've well, just I, wondered why why her face drops in that moment. If if she's not, mm. uh, you know, if it's not a potentially incriminating moment, then what is what is that moment? Because she's the, the other problem with the whole date rape thing is that she she continues to be kind to to shoot her for the rest of the movie, and you know yeah. she helps him out of that that dilemma, and then she also declares her love for him right right at the end after he shot her. Yeah. You know what does he need to do? <laughs> to, so you know she's still. She still has the feeling like for him. maybe maybe her internal um as 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 much as she is kind of putting on a, a a good performance that's kind of compelling to watch maybe the internal psychology of her character doesn't really make any sense okay, I wanted to uh just make note of my favorite character, but also what he represents, which is the 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 thing that if you are a Verhoeven fan, you want to see social commentary, you want to see satire. And I think it couldn't be any more explicit than the Gus character when uh, Nick just invades his cowboy space. <laughs> and he's, he's in that bar 
um, which is like what, like a line dancing bar, I yeah. think it is. And uh, and then he, you know, Gus, who's been in this moral, morally ambiguous world, our most likable character, kind of goes a little racist. <laughs> <laughs> and I do feel like this is Verhoeven kind of outwardly laughing at this kind of subculture of American, um, you know, com- conservative values of you know these bunch of white guys dancing in cowboy hats and. And Gus is trying to eat what some kind of soup chili, diner? chili, yeah. Chili. And uh, he's just being outwardly racist. Too many tourists. There's too many tourists in this country. Uh, yeah, it's really weird. You want to die, horse? What is it? Those goddamn tourists? You still feel so bad about that? You're wiggling your way into an ice pick. Got too many goddamn tourists coming here anyway. Plenty down. more goddamn tourists where they goddamn came from. Why the hell not? I don't know. I'm just not. That's her pussy talking. It ain't your brain. Yes, I think he's bitter because, you know, things like this never happen to him. Like, they always happen to Shooter. Shooter gets into right. all, all of the interesting things. He gets all the girls... And Gus is just through with it, and I think he's just venting, maybe. The guy who's been currently, not, he's not, you wouldn't say he's been a moral compass, but at the very least, he's the guy who's saying, definitely don't continue sleeping with this woman who's almost definitely a murderer. Well, do you think it is 100%? Catherine, you think it's, uh... Oh yeah, yeah, in my eyes, it's, it's Catherine all the way. Like I said, she's got a supernatural quality, or a kind of Bond villainess quality, where she's able to kind of read and mm. manipulate and 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 get people to to act in a way that that means that her entire plan which is, is kind of it kind of steps in motion because yeah we we didn't mention it but the murder kind of just falls away about halfway through the film like, the johnny boss murder yeah, it, it, it yeah really no one cares out. about johnny boss like who cares about that guy yeah um, <laughs> that, the, that really um, just gets dropped i think there's a, i mean there's for me at least there's enough in the in the film itself where you know gus's death where you see beth step out of the stairwell and there's the what they what they term an orgy of evidence is that from from minority report oh it's <laughs> such a great so. line from minority yeah. reports it's colin farrell is like you know yeah, how many orgies yeah. i've had zero yeah um, yeah because um, it is it's, so it's they grab the wig yeah the ice so pick, and then out, it's of, a... out of this clear frame job but also the, the <laughs> gus death where it's like oh i don't know if it was but the gus uh, Gus's death was uh, was was written by Catherine yeah, in a book, which she is literally print. Yeah, she's printing out for the first time, so it's not as if you know. So yeah, to, and and also they've they've set up the stuff before that, like the lock on her apartment door doesn't yeah. work very well, and that the 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 drawer where she leaves the cigarettes, she says leave it in the top drawer. Is that right? I think yeah, so. That's yeah, the correct, yeah. There and, and yeah. yeah, the door that, that doesn't lock correctly, and yeah, the, the whole the whole thing about it, it being written in the book and Nick kind of seeing it come out of the printer at that time. I think it says the fourth floor. It definitely says the partner. And yeah, uh, it, it's all it's all there. Uh, and I love the way that that scene's constructed uh, with with the elevator. The the one, two, three. You expect yeah. the kill, then the doors shut. That, again, that whole Gus sequence, I mentioned it right at the beginning, it's straight out of a horror film, right? It's a mm. full-blown slasher. 
whole that murder in particular felt like it had a De Palma influence to it. And uh, I guess I got one more question, guys, before we sort of wrap our final thoughts on uh, on Basic Instinct, the erotic thriller, making a make a comeback one day soon. It kind of really did disappear on us, and yeah. um, I I kind of feel like we're missing. There's a, there's a part of uh, of like the cinema landscape that needs to be filled with this type of this type of film with with A-listers and major studios kind of leaning into it because I know that television you know sex scenes explicit sex scenes television has definitely um, taken that over you know you you can't go through a series without some form of explicit sex scene but yeah I feel like we're missing something that it's not in the cinema as a shared experience or am I just being a weirdo <laughs> It's not so, uh, sordid anymore, is it? It just doesn't, the, the idea of that, uh, you know, some of these things existed, um, because it was the only way for teenagers to get a, to get a look at this stuff, you know, once upon a time. It, it's just not true anymore. It's all over TV. It's all over the internet. And, uh, you know, what, what do you think the, that these erotic thrillers were, were giving people then that, that, they would continue to give us now. I mean, I, I have this kind of idea about, uh, you know, Game of Thrones and shows like that where the, the pornography aspect and the fantasy aspect should maybe remain separate. And just having these shows being kind of titillating it's on, on the surface isn't, isn't really enough. But, um, I don't know. Do, do you think they would be, it would be okay to bring them back and they would still be valid? Or do you think that times have changed so much that it, they wouldn't quite fit back in? Well, I mean, Basic Instinct 2 completely and utterly tanked, like really mm. badly. Um, so if you were to go from a purely what are the audience craving and is it time, then, I mean, I guess there's been enough distance. There's been films that have had sex with stars. You know, I think about um, Keanu Reeves in um, Knock Knock, but it's all, mm-hmm. I guess, you know what I'm, you know what I'm driving at is, um, and I hate to always sort of throw, throw stones at the, the sort of the, the Marvel and Disney, um, monopoly of cinema. But all those films, when I've watched them, there's never any kind of brewing sexual tension or there never feels like that's, really, yeah, that is true. They, they never, mm-hmm. they never really allude to the idea that these characters might be sexually involved. It's all done off screen. You know, Iron Man right. and Pepper Potts get a kid, but, you know, we've never seen them do anything outside of just have some witty banter. And I do feel like that is a shame because the dynamics between men and women shouldn't, it shouldn't be just put aside for the fear of it being misconstrued because I don't know, I guess office politics, gender politics, we, our interactions, they should be put up on screen you know, for yeah. the, for the good and for the bad, because these things need exploring. It, I think it's remiss to just be like, listen, we'll just remove sex out of the equation and we'll just have characters be neutral and platonic all the time. Well, you lose, you lose any kind of fundamental connection to the humanity of the, the characters, because if you think it's just, if you remove something that's such a, a kind of imprinted basic instinct, primal urge, whatever you want to call it. Mm. You, you can't, uh, you can't identify with people if they act like fucking sexless androids. But, but there are levels, right? That there's the, the explicit side. And then there's also the James Bond kind of Indiana Jones side where it's clearly a, a romantic involvement between, mm. between them, but you never see anything other than, you know, kissing. And there's, there's a love scene perhaps, but there's nothing, nothing as explicit as we see here. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think it's fine to have it in tears, but I, I agree with gals that, uh, I think you, I think you deaden the impact of stuff if you have absolutely zero. I mean, if it's, if it's not relevant to the plot, then that's fine. I think like there are films for which it's not going to be relevant thing going on to, uh, to kind of, uh, sanitize the, the kind of Marvel universe and all this stuff. There's just nothing, nothing at all. So it's, and I'm not talking about hypersexualizing characters for the sake of it. Yeah. You know? God help us if we have to watch another Suicide Squad with Margot Robbie just running around in tight right. shorts for the sake of uh, titillating some fanboys. I'm on about characters acting like humans when they interact with each yeah. other, and and you know, like like Devon said, don't want to keep uh, keep going for the old the basic instincts. But men get attracted to women, women get attracted to men, women and, and men are attracted to same sex. You know, everyone has a degree of. Uh, of sexual attraction to whatever their preferences are. And I just feel like it kind of gets neutered if we don't even have it as part of a character's likes, dislikes, mm. wants, needs. I just feel like you lose a lot. And I'm not saying that we need loads of basic instinct ripoffs, but Michael Douglas was worried about it in 92. And I don't know. I'm not suggesting I should be the guy who's going to start starring in these films. I mean, that, as much as that would be quite fun. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just saying that I, I wonder... I wonder what we lose, I guess, because with all the television shows, everyone watches them, but they watch them in the comfort of their own homes. Yeah. And yeah. I think you miss that shared experience thing of being like, oh, the chemistry was brewing mm-hmm. there. And you felt it and you feel the energy. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure that Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone have both said that they actually didn't necessarily get on with each other that well in the, during yeah. the filming of Basic Instinct. But God, if you don't see that, I mean, like it's two actors at the, the height of their powers. Like, yeah. That chemistry is is pretty brewing. Um, it's partly down to the face that Douglas pulls all the time. It's like like gurning, straining face of like, oh, I'm gonna just rip the clothes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like um, the, uh, there's a kind of two prong thing. One is that I would like to see, like I say, I would like to see kind of that element come back into a certain amount of cinema, just because I, I think it is kind of compelling and a bit necessary. And I mentioned like the the handmaiden, just because mm. I watched that in the cinema. I saw it in a big, big. Um, it was actually a screening where Park Chanwick was, was there and he was doing a Q and A after and that you do, there is something about, you know, in the, the, the kind of theater space and, and having something where everything was, was integral. Like it all, that was the point of the film. So you can't make that film unless you actually show the kind of centrality on screen, uh, which is great. But also on the other hand, I just, I, I really love trash and preferably like, just sort of mildly embarrassing trash. So while I don't mm. think Basic Instinct is, uh, I think I think Basic Instinct is pulp, not trash. But there's uh, there's yeah, not well, often a particularly it's a, a sliver between the two of them. Again, mm, pun not intended. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you know, like uh, gals, when you came uh, over to uh, my house last weekend, what did we end up watching in the middle of the afternoon? Oh, we watched Barb Wire starring Pamela Anderson, <laughs> oh, wow. and that was a, the that was the perfect slice of trash. Yeah. I mean, it's a rubbish film, but my God, was it fun, wasn't it? We it had a lot of fun with it. And like, you know, I just feel like it's it's you you lose something if you can't indulge that silliness yeah. as well as indulging it as a seriousness. Like, it, it just it feels like yeah, it's been a bit excised from, especially from Hollywood cinema, and um, it's a shame. Yeah, it is. And I'm talking very much about major Hollywood uh, films here. I'm not, 
I, I know that these films are being made in independent spheres and in the, the kind of the art house scene, but I'm on about mass media products with A-list stars that are recognizable to, mm. to audiences that aren't us who are, you know, let's face it, we're cinephiles. We'll watch pretty much anything. Um, if, if it, if it feels like it's going to be worth our time, whereas most people, you know, they're, they, they want they want entertainment for two hours and it, the mass media stuff is going to be the thing that will make the the imprints culturally as well let's be fair like you know basic instinct made a, a splash because it was a cultural phenomenon uh just as it was a, a kind of cinematic success so um yeah i guess on the, anyway, on the, well, I was gonna say, on the plus side we may get our wish because just before we started recording we were having our little chat and we all d- discovered when we said what is like Adrian line up to these days. We found out that Adrian line is making an erotic thriller with Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas. Right. Okay. Well, there you go. So That's the- let's all just make sure we all go out and see it. Yeah. This could be the comeback. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So guys, should we, should we wrap it up? Final thoughts, Matt, uh, would you recommend basic instinct? Well, this is one I'm, I'm kind of falling between here. I'm not really too sure. I've, I've felt like, uh, personally like revisiting the film was really necessary and quite revealing um and i i kind of enjoyed it but i i I don't know how comfortable i am like saying that i enjoyed it but uh after those initial vhs viewings i i didn't buy the dvd or the blu-ray and i bought everything from my childhood on dvd i collected everything but not this and i wondered why and I think on some level it, it says something about my feelings towards the film. I, I don't, it, it's almost identical to what uh, Devlin said at the beginning of, of the podcast. I don't really associate it with my other favorite films of the time. And I've, I've kind of uh, partitioned it off because it was so kind of sleazy and thought, thought to be a, a bit dirty or just a, a naughty film in, in general. But it, it remains a guilty pleasure. Uh, it's not something I'd put a poster of on my wall, but it, and it's kind of in this film uh, purgatory for me. Uh, and I have a, a strange history with the film. Like Bill Hicks, for example, I got into his stand-up, and he did this bit about it being a, a you know a piece of shit. And don't think about the is it homophobic, you know don't worry about any of those things. It's just a piece of shit. And I, although I don't agree wholeheartedly, it, I think it is a flawed film, um, but it, it will, it exists now and it will continue to exist in, as part of this dead genre of, of defunct eighties and nineties erotic thrillers. And it's still the big one, like pop culturally. It's the, it's right at the top. And uh, along with probably the fatal attraction, as far as the bunny boiling and things like that, I think that one's up there too. Um, uh, Verhoeven summed it up for me in, uh, well, not really summed it up for me, but I agreed with him in the, in the Blonde Poison documentary on the DVD. He says, it's just a nonsense movie um, too, isn't it? I mean, a woman killing people at orgasm basically just for fun to see if she gets away with it is kind of an idiotic premise. So he, he was complimentary about his own film, but then he went on to say that. And um, uh, I, I don't think it's something I would revisit to appreciate the, the cinema of it, but to, to look at that forgotten erotic thriller genre, it's actually really interesting. And 
you know, if, if any cinephiles out there are looking for good erotic thrillers, you know, you've got Eyes Wide Shut and you've got Mulholland Drive and you've got Cronenberg's Crash, not the haggis nonsense. The uh, You've got mm-hmm. Cat People and De Palma and all of those things in the cut. And, and Chris mentioned uh, Bound earlier. That's really cool. But then for people who like things with this kind of a, a tone that, that are more uh, a bit dafter, but more still culturally important and quite iconic um, with that kind of sleaze appeal, you've got all the Douglas three, you've got basic instinct, disclosure and fatal attraction. And then, you know, that led to kind of things like wild things and cruel intentions that I kind of missed too. I kind of like those those films uh, i think it's very generous to class this alongside some of the superior neo-noirs like la confidential and films like that but it's certainly iconic and it's certainly a blockbuster and um for me it's the apotheosis of of the 90s uh erotic thriller genre which which says a lot and it's totally worth worth seeing you know something that's at the absolute peak of, of a genre that's not around anymore is really uh, worth a look, always, I think. I will address uh, my thoughts, which have been pretty clear. Um, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highly recommend this one. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I respect your views, Matt, and your conflicted thoughts on the film, um, but I had, a, I had a real good time with this one. Even despite the... Uh, sort of problematic scene with the date rape of Beth, which is, you know, I totally agree is really uncomfortable and uh, doesn't sit well at all in 2020. And I don't think would have sat well in 92, to be fair. But I guess, you know, again, it's a display of progress in society and in in the films that we uh, that are now made uh, with characters and representation. Um, uh, I, I think when you've got a character like Catherine Tremell, who I am. I'm desperate to try and get horror fandom to start cosplaying more as this this great femme fatale who is almost like a slasher uh, killer. She's great. She's fantastic. Um, and obviously I love Michael Douglas. But uh, I also think as well that I will keep repeating my watches on Basic Instinct because I think this is Verhoeven properly playing in the conventions of a specific genre and and doing all sorts of fun stuff with it. Does it hang together as a procedural? Nope. Uh, if you pick this apart, you will find that uh, the plot holes are big and vast. Um, but uh, as a kind of as a mood, a tone, and the the execution of it all, I think it's masterfully put together. I just think, uh, yeah, I had a really, really good time with this one. So maybe it just caught me in a good groove. But um, yeah, I'm going to highly recommend Basic Instinct. Uh, maybe purchase it on Amazon. Uh, to ensure that you don't get the the shades thrown at you uh, if you p- purchase it uh, physically <laughs> in a store. Yeah. Uh, that's probably the other thing I would say. Um, but yeah, what about you, Devlin? I mean, that's one, one, one each coming into the final, the well, fourth quarter, I, two minute drive. I, what we say? I, I was enjoying uh, how in depth you both were, and and um, I'm gonna, you know, it's just like fire and ice, and I'm gonna come up in here like lukewarm water. I think time has been kind to it in one way, which is that, like we were saying, that the 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 representation of the of the characters it had accusations of uh, misogyny, homophobia, and the likes leveled at it, and they're all valid. Uh, I, I I don't think that you could deny that that's that's it's not a stretch to get to that reading. However, I think with the um with the way cinema's kind of moved forward, and the, the there is 
it's still lagging behind, but there is still greater representation elsewhere. And uh, I think if you, if you take this film kind of as a whole, uh, with them, uh, it, it, it hangs together in the way that it just portrays everyone as being, you know, morally, uh, compromised to greater or lesser degrees. And the character of Catherine Trammell, the way she is put together, the way she is portrayed, the way she's written, performed, uh, is, is properly iconic. Um, and that's, and, and that's enough for me. Uh, I, I think it's, I, I don't know whether I'd call it a guilty pleasure, but maybe, and not in the sense that it's not a guilty pleasure in the sense that I think it's rubbish, but that I enjoy it anyway. I think it's more a guilty pleasure in that sense of, it is such a shameless indulgence and it's all so kind of knowingly absurdly lurid and it revels in that and and i think that it's a it's a it's a, a great version of exactly what it wanted to be uh so i, I would i mean i would recommend going back and watching it if you've not seen it since you're a kid slash teenager slash even student because there is more there's more to dig from it but uh, I don't think it's terribly deep, but I'm also fine with that. You can find Basic Instinct on, uh, unfortunately, it's going to have to be a physical media purchase. There's not um, not currently on any streaming sites. Is that right, Davlin? I think maybe Sky Movies got it. Um, I would imagine you can the, probably download it from Sky Movies. Um, yeah, you can download it. Yeah, you'll get it on YouTube. Just go second-hand DVD but... shop. It's about a pound. Try and get the one with the... Uh feminist commentary there's a feminist audio commentary i can't remember the name of the lady and there's uh she actually has an ice pick on the recording uh and uh with the verhoven and uh de bont commentary as well it's really worth a worth a look if you get the dvd well yeah because uh in, and interestingly i think it's again it might be a rights issue but if you buy the blu-ray you just get the film um so you'd be better off going for one of the later printed DVDs that have got the extras. Cause I always find that really disappointing when they just bang out a Blu-ray and it's just the film. Yeah. And that's a shame. The extras. Um, but I'm Especially assuming if it's a film that for, for better or worse has a massive cultural footprint, you know? So we'll say our goodbyes, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I really, uh, I really enjoyed uh, discussing basic instinct. Um, and yeah, I think I had a really good time. So uh, I don't really have a good funny line other than to say, please enjoy another level. There you go. It's Gally in Glasgow <laughs> signing out. <laughs> and it's Devon in London. Thanks very much for a lovely chat, lads. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I'm going to put on a deep V sweater and uh, head out to a club for a bit of a dance now. So uh, see you next time. Okay, cool. Well, enjoy it and uh, freak me, baby. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> we'll see you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.
Let me lift you up.